Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we always like to do before we study. We're going to be finishing chapter 21 of Genesis this morning. So let's get right to it. Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, for the blessings of a church in which so many are giving their gifts every week. Each of us arrive, Father, every Sunday as recipients of your blessing through the gifts of the body. How easily we might overlook that. And even if we aren't able to take time and thank each person, we thank you. You are the one who gives all good things. And by the service and by the sacrifice of others, we enjoy an opportunity to get to know you better here and to celebrate your work in our life and to learn how to share it more effectively. We thank you for the opportunity that we have here. And once a week, Father, is, is a wonderful opportunity, but for many of us, I know for myself, it's hardly enough. There are so many other days of the week when we long for the touch of the body of Christ and the spirit in our life and, and to know you are close as you promise. I pray we find this is an opportunity to charge us forward into the rest of our week and then you would keep us alift, aloft in all that we do through the week in other ways as well. As we turn our attention to the word you provided through Moses concerning Abraham and his family and his work, let us see ourselves in the text, Father. For we know it was prepared for our benefit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every time I pray for the sermon, I'm reminded of a story of a young man, a young boy, the son of a pastor. And the pastor, whenever he would get ready to stand in the pulpit, he had a habit of bowing his head silently and praying before he entered. And the son had noticed this. And one time the son, after service, asked his father about this ritual. Why do you pray before you get into the pulpit. And, and the father smiled and he said, well, son, I asked the Lord to give me a good sermon. And the boy had a puzzled look on his face. And he said, well, why doesn't he then? <laughs> yeah, oh dear, is exactly right. I'm sure that's a prayer that's been spoken in here a few times. All right, well, chapter 21. We left off at about verse 14 last week. I want to dive right back into the story and let's finish it. The time had come, as you saw last week, for Abraham and Sarah to separate their two children, the child of the flesh, who we know as Ishmael, from the child of promise and grace, and that's Isaac. In fact, if we go back further in the story, we remember Hagar herself is a product of sin, of Abraham's sin specifically, of going into Egypt when he shouldn't have, coming out with a servant that would later become his wife. Ishmael was a product of Sarah's sin, in a sense, her sin of impatience, offering Hagar to her husband instead of waiting. And the chain of sin on both Abraham and Sarah's part have brought them now here to this point. And the effect of all those mistakes are felt not only here for them in this moment as Abraham goes through the pain of separation from his firstborn son, Ishmael, but it's actually going to be felt for thousands of years through many generations, even until today. The Arabs and the Jews at odds with one another, stemming all the way back from this moment of separation. But even in the midst of their sin, the Lord remains faithful to his word. And Moses has been very patient to reflect that truth in this story. God's word, in fact, is so certain as he declares things to be. That word is so certain, so sure, not even God can change it. He is true to his word. And so when he promised Abraham that his descendants would be blessed, it will be so. And here we have a consequence of that promise. Abraham was to set his wife, Hagar, and his first child, Ishmael, free from him forevermore, 
trusting that the Lord would do as he said he would do. He would bless this child. And so that Abraham did not feel any need to do it on God's behalf. Verse 14, we read, So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder, and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was used up, she left the boy under one of the bushes. And then she went and sat down opposite him, about a bow shot away, for she said, Do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. This is a bit of review, a little anyway, from last week, but I wanted to make sure that as we move forward in the text, we had the full context in our minds again. So as we read last week, Abraham signifies the completeness of this separation in this small ritual that he accomplishes here in front of Hagar and Ishmael. The simple rations he gave, water and bread, hung on her shoulder, all of that is to say she will receive no inheritance from Abraham. This is the end of the line for her and his family line. That was the stipulation God gave. God told Abraham, listen to the voice of your wife because she has heard from me. And concerning these matters, a slave boy shall not be a fellow heir with the child of promise. And as we studied last week, Paul elaborates saying that is representative of a greater truth spiritually. When a greater thing has come by grace, then we are to put away the lesser things that have come by the flesh. And in this case, we see Ishmael and Isaac as pictures of the old covenant giving way to the new. Abraham gives the boy into her hands, signifying that she now will be the one to care for him. He will no longer care for his own son. And off they go into the wilderness, we're told, of Beersheba. Now, Beersheba on the map is southward from where they are now, indicating that once again, her instincts are to go back to her homeland, which is in Egypt, south of where Abraham lives. It's an unforgiving desert wilderness, both then and now. The water rations Abraham has given them were minimal. One skin, one canteen, I guess you might call it, of water. And therefore, it's unlikely that it's going to keep her and her son alive long enough to get anywhere that they're trying to go. So if Abraham had not trusted God in his promise to care for this child because of what he told Abraham he would do, then he would never have done this. Arguably, how could we have expected him to let them go under these circumstances? It would have been a death sentence. And we know how reluctant he was in the first place to even let them go at all. The only explanation for the way he let them go was a complete and utter trust that when God said he would take care of them, Abraham didn't need to make up the difference. He let them go. And sure enough, here we are now with her, Hagar, and her son wandering in the wilderness. Wandering here is a polite term for aimlessly being lost in the desert. And that wandering has reached a critical point because based on their exposure to the sun, the heat, the wilderness, etc., they are at the point of exhaustion and dehydration. And the son actually succumbs first. And we said last week, he's in his mid to late teens at this point. He's not some young toddler. But for whatever reason, mom is hardier and has held up a little better. Maybe the son has been gracious along the way and let mom have the, the bulk of the water. But whatever the cause, he needs to lie down. And she finds some place for him where there's a little bit of shade, meager shade. And she puts him on the ground, lying there, knowing that his time is short and not wanting to see him die. She walks 40, 50 yards away, something like that. And when it says she sits opposite him, it means away from him, with her back to him. Not looking at him, in other words, not wanting to watch him die, which is what she says. 
I don't want to see this happen. You know she's feeling desperate. What mother couldn't feel the same emotion of just thinking about something like this? Father's much the same. And she weeps. You know, this moment, this nadir, this valley in their life, it's caused by one man's sin. Abraham. Abraham's sin has hurt more than just himself. Hagar didn't ask to be taken out of Egypt. She was a slave in Egypt. She didn't ask to be married to Abraham. That was something that was done to her. And now that she's been set away from the family in this way, she must be wondering, how did I get to this point? Abraham's sin has not only hurt himself, but it's poised to crush two more people along with him. And I've said before what I think bears repeating now. When we make choices or decisions that are outside God's will, which is a nice way of saying when we sin, we will suffer penalty one way or another. But if that reality, that our sin will have consequences for ourselves, if that reality is not enough for us to think twice and to step away from a sin before we commit it, consider at least how it impacts others. There is no such thing as a victimless sin. The full impact of our sin is not limited to the natural and foreseeable consequences of what we do. God has stated in His Word, famously in, in Deuteronomy fourteen eighteen, that it is His principle to visit the sins of one generation into subsequent generations. And Ishmael and Hagar offer a case study of sorts in that principle at work. Hagar and Ishmael are now suffering because of their father's and husband's sin. And I suggest that if we had gone back in time to the moment when some of these decisions were being made, when the decision to remove Hagar from Egypt was made, or even when the decision for Hagar and Abraham to marry was made, that they could never have foreseen this moment. That if they had tried, they couldn't have done that. And yet here we are. Ishmael and Hagar are now suffering because of decisions that were made literally decades earlier. And the descendants of Isaac, those being the Jewish people, will likewise suffer at the hands of the descendants of Ishmael, the Arab people, for many generations. Who could have foreseen that? God enforces this principle both to encourage us to set aside sin and so that he may use family lines as living examples of the corrupting power of sin as testimony for others not to do the same. Now, to be clear, because I know in some places this is misunderstood. I don't want to perpetuate misunderstanding. God isn't causing the penalty for sin to be visited onto other people. Everyone is accountable for their own sin and no one else's. And as it turns out, everyone has sin, so everyone has a measure of accountability built into their own life before anyone else does anything around them. But the circumstances of our earthly life can suffer because of the sin of others. That's different than talking about our eternal destiny or about our eternal judgment. Fathers and mothers, by their sin, can bring consequences on their children. Spouses can bring consequences against their spouse. And in many cases, even against future spouses, they don't even know yet. Brothers upon sisters, children upon their parents. We, we see that, right? Neighbors upon each other. But the Lord is good to step into the lives of people and break that cycle and bring grace anew and restore families when it suits his purposes. There are many believers, and I count myself as one of them, 
who bear a testimony of having been the first in many previous generations in their family to come to the Lord. To this point in my life, I'm the only one I know in my family who's a believer, going as far back as you can mention. There's probably a couple exceptions to that. You know, it's a testimony to God that he would step into a, to a life like mine or anyone else's, for that matter, in which the families before have not been walking with the Lord, have not known the Lord, and then out of the blue, out of the darkness, God calls one man or one woman into faith and begins perhaps a new chain in which the blessings will come one after another through generations. Consider the power then of our decisions when we decide one way or the other whether to sin, whether to walk closely with the Lord, or whether to choose something else. Contemplate. What are the ramifications? What are the potential ramifications? And not just for yourself. Ask yourself, how might this decision impact others I love, others I know? Maybe others I will love one day and don't even know yet. That's what we're feeling and seeing as we look at Hagar and Ishmael in the desert right now. The products of another man's sin. And now here God is ready to step in and bring that grace because of a word he gave. Verse 17. God heard the lad crying, and the angel of the Lord called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter with you? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. I want you to notice whose crying gained the Lord's attention. It was not Hagar's. In verse 17, the Lord heard the young boy crying. Now that tells us, first of all, that he was crying or weeping in some sense. We hadn't heard that yet. Now we see that it must have been happening. And he responded to the lad's crying. Why didn't he respond to Hagar's crying? Or why is he making this distinction? Because his promise that he extended to Abraham was that Abraham's descendants would be blessed. And God is bound by his word. Now his intent was that that promise would rest on a certain child. And would flow through the generations that came from that certain child. But here, Abraham went with Hagar and made another child. Well, God is still bound to his word. What he is not bound to do is to carry that promise any further than Ishmael. So Ishmael is the one God is rescuing, not Hagar. God's reputation is on the line with what happens to Ishmael, not Hagar. Ishmael has to live. Ishmael has to become a mighty nation. Or else God will be made to be a liar. And that will not happen. Look at God's instructions to Hagar, though, because I'm not suggesting God is not prepared to extend some grace to Hagar, but he does it in a very specific way. He asks her, what's the matter with you? Do not fear, for the Lord has heard the cries of the lad, and he tells her, take hold of his hand. Now, what he's telling her in a nutshell is, if you want to live, stay close to that boy, because he's going to live. So her choice was whether or not to remain with that child, knowing the Lord was going to be faithful to his promise or save herself some other way. But that boy has the blessing of the Lord following him because of promises God made to Abraham. And she can find her salvation, so to speak, her earthly rescue by maintaining a close association with her son. This brings into focus a corollary principle to the one I just gave a moment earlier. The earlier principle, of course, was that our sin has consequences often generations past our own life. This corollary, though, says that those on whom the blessing of the Lord rests will be a blessing to others and often into future generations. In Ishmael's case, the blessing was that because of the promise God made to his father, Abraham, that Ishmael would be blessed likewise. 
There is no evidence in Scripture, I should add, that Ishmael was a follower of the living God or an Old Testament saint or a believer. That would be the term we might use today. There's no evidence to suggest that. We're talking strictly about how God was carrying out, fulfilling his word in an earthly context only. Nevertheless, Ishmael is blessed by association with his father. And Ishmael will see the blessing of living a long life and having nations come from him. But that then suggests that the blessing has some residual effect. Because if there's going to be nations come from Ishmael, then Ishmael's sons have to live and have children and have children. You see the point? God blessed one man and it transcended into a first generation son, Ishmael. But even that had residual effect down the line in order for God's word not to be seen as false. Even today, the Arab nations who descend from Ishmael are blessed. I'm thinking now strictly in the earthly sense, just in what they have in this world. They live in one of the most arid, destitute places on earth in terms of the geography, and they're rich. That doesn't give them anything spiritually. My point is only the fact that God has been true to his word in blessing Ishmael. And then some. So as children of God, we have been included into these very same promises by faith through our belief and our trust in his son, Jesus Christ. And that will result in a blessing. Spiritually, of course, that's the preeminent blessing. But there are earthly blessings as well. And by this I mean we have become children of God by faith. The world likes to say that everybody is a child of God. The Bible stands opposed to that nonsense. There is a specific meaning to that phrase in Scripture. A child of God is not someone who's just born and living. That is a child of Adam. Child of God is a specific meaning in Scripture that is someone who's been born again by spirit, someone who's come to believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, and by that belief has been reborn by the Spirit, and now and only now are they called the child of God. All the rest of the world, Jesus very bluntly calls children of the devil. Because that's who we were before we came to know the Lord. But among those who are called children of God by faith, Jesus says this in Matthew 7, 9. Of what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? Well, if you then, being evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? In everything, therefore, treat people the same way that you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Our Father in heaven has a heart, Jesus says, to give us good gifts. And He's speaking here in the earthly sense. He's not making this more important than our spiritual gifts of of salvation. And inheritance, he's not making this the main point. He's saying this is a supplementary point. That in addition to that, God is also a God who wants to give us what we need in this life to whatever is good, which, by the way, may not be what we want, but it's what the Lord knows is best. And he delights to receive our thanks in recognition for those gifts. And just as we had a choice in the earlier principle as to whether or not we will sin and suffer those consequences and and others with us, Likewise, now we have a choice concerning God's blessings, earthly now I'm speaking. We can decide whether God's blessings to us will become an opportunity to bless others or whether we'll simply keep it to ourselves. Obvious examples jump to mind. We're going to receive material blessings in our life. God is going to make sure we have the things we need. And in often cases, he will give us more than we need. And that becomes an opportunity for us 
to bless others. We can give generously in whatever fashion God calls us to, wherever he calls us to, or we can lead selfish lives before others. But it goes into other dimensions, too. We can speak to other people in kind and grace-filled ways in the midst of a world that knows only coarse and boastful language. That's one way in which the blessings that we have in knowing what it means to have our speech salted with grace, knowing what that means and being able to transfer that to others, that's a blessing in the world. We can choose to show hospitality. We can choose to show generosity and consideration in a world in which those things are increasingly rare. Just as we can choose to let our sin influence others, we can also make a choice concerning whether the blessing that it is to be a child of God and receive his allowances can be a source for blessing others or not. We should make the most of these opportunities. And you know what will happen if we do, of course. If we make the most of those opportunities to share in our earthly blessings, we're going to end up having opportunities to talk about our spiritual blessings, aren't we? I've never seen a faster way to open up a helpful conversation on spiritual matters than to come to the aid of someone in an earthly way and look at their reaction as you do things that no one else does in their experience. And as they ponder, why are you being so kind to me? And they question whether there's some ulterior motive and they're looking for the angle and they're worried you're going to have a gotcha. And when all of that passes and they realize you're just a nice person, what's up with that? Those people don't exist anymore. Not in my world. Where did you come from? That's your opportunity to say, you know, I used to feel the same way. The only difference between you and I is who I know and who you should know. It's a great opportunity. And maybe God will use the blessing of our life into their life to start a new cycle in their life, breaking what may have been generations of unbelief. Somebody did that for me. So Ishmael here is blessed through Abraham and Hagar is blessed as well. Look at verse 19. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. God was with the lad and he grew and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Well, this only takes a minute to explain. It's fairly self-evident. God opens her eyes. She sees a well of water or an oasis might be another way to say it. But what's interesting about that, of course, is it's nearby. And there's no suggestion in the text that this is some supernatural moment in which water and, and an oasis is magically made out of nothing. The suggestion is quite the opposite. Out of the text, the suggestion is it was always right there. But God opened her eyes to see it, to notice it. It's interesting that he let them get to such a desperate state before he brought the solution. He could have given them water earlier, right? He comes only now. I like to remember this passage when I find myself in a desperate moment of whatever kind. When things always look the most bleak, you know, the darkest before the dawn. What I remind myself with this passage is, you know, the solution might be a lot closer than I realize. And the Lord is simply waiting for me to place my trust in him and my dependence in him and come to him in a request. And as soon as I'm willing to do that and honor him by recognizing he is the giver of all good things, he'll open my eyes and I'll see what was before me the whole time. Only after I appeal to him will he rescue me sometimes. So as God promised, the boy is rescued in the moment, carries on from there forward, grows up under God's watch, lives in the wilderness, becomes an archer. And Ishmael settles, we're told, in Paran. If you look on a map, Paran is present-day Sinai, which is really at the heart of Arabia. 
And eventually he finds a wife out of the Egyptians because his mom, being Egyptian, went back there to find a wife for him. There's going to be a brief reunion later in the story of Genesis between Isaac and Ishmael. It comes at the death of their father. They get together for the funeral. And isn't it always the way it works? Funerals are family reunions by necessity. Later we'll see Esau, who is the forsaken son of Isaac, Jacob's brother. Esau will take his wife from Ishmael's family. So the forsaken lines of Abraham and Isaac will end up combining together in marriage, while the chosen line remains separate. So now that we move to the last part of this chapter, and it's a curious scene, and in fact, at first glance, seems very odd because it feels stuck on, almost out of place with what's happened around it. But as always is the case, there's more going on than meets the eye. Look at verse 22. Now, it came about at that time that Abimelech and Philcol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity. But according to the kindness that I have shown to you, you shall show to me and to the land in which you have sojourned. Abraham said, I swear it. Well, where did this come from? We know Abimelech. He's the same king of Gerar we were studying just a a short time ago, earlier. The moment in which Abraham moved into Gerar and then said to his wife, tell everyone you're my sister, and that whole routine again. And Abimelech took Sarah. We remember that story. This is the same king that Abraham had deceived in that earlier moment. In that last encounter, what Abimelech had learned was Abraham was a prophet of God, but that doesn't mean Abraham was always listening to God. And that was a dichotomy that I'm sure that Abimelech had some difficulty reconciling. How can he be a prophet of such a powerful God who's obviously intent on protecting this man at all costs? And yet he's a lion. You know what? Interesting dilemma for Abimelech. And apparently God's blessing of Abraham has been so dramatic, so apparent, so powerful that it's caused the king of Gerar to feel threatened over it. The text doesn't say this outright, but it's pretty obvious when you look at what he's saying in this request for a covenant. Abimelech is worried that Abraham may be interested in displacing the king from the land of Gerar. Previously, the king, remember, had told Abraham after the incident with God and Sarah, he had said, you may have any place in my land to settle. Just go away and take care of yourself and leave me alone. But he had given him free reign out of the land of Gerar. Now, watching Abraham become so powerful and recognizing this has to be a supernatural work of a God that's more powerful than us. He's beginning to wonder if his generosity isn't going to be used against him. That if Abraham sojourns long enough and gets big enough and powerful enough and as a tribe has enough wealth and might, he might one day decide, I want to be king of this land. And then Abimelech might find himself on the outs. So he visits with the commander of his army, a man called Philcol, we're told. And actually, similar to the way Abimelech is not actually a name, it's a title. Philcol is not a name either. It means commander of the guard. So he's simply bringing the king and the captain. That's really what these names mean. In that day and age, standing armies were not very common. They were very rare. People didn't have the money to do that. People tended to just join to the fight when it was called. So in order to make a statement to Abraham, Abimelech cannot call a large contingent of troops and march them down as a show of force. The closest thing he can do is bring his commander. That's what he's doing here. It's a show of force, making a not too subtle point that I'm willing to fight if necessary to hold on to my territory. He's not hoping for a fight, but he wants to make clear he's willing to have one. Abimelech says, I know your God is with you 
in all that you do. And that's a very revealing statement. In fact, it reveals a lot about both God and Abraham. On the one hand, God has chosen to make himself visible to the world through the life of one man. So effectively, in fact, that the people around him can't help but acknowledge there is something going on that is not natural. It's supernatural. God's presence is so powerful and there is so much evidence that God is doing a work here that they have to acknowledge it. And you can imagine what that might have looked like. This is a wilderness. This is desert. This is unforgiving land. And Abraham is spending his entire existence in this kind of a setting. He's not going into the fertile valleys. He's not going into the city once a week for his milk run and to get supplies. He's staying in the middle of this unforgiving desert wilderness and he's growing leaps and bounds. His herd is multiplying. His servants are having children and they're supporting all of this with no trouble at all. There's no explanation for it. Anyone else under similar conditions would be lucky to stay alive. And so Abimelech looks at this and says, if he can multiply in the middle of the desert, there's no stopping this guy. The thing it tells us about Abraham, though, is that this man is carrying his testimony well. Because although God is prepared to bless him, Abraham could have, could have chosen to trust in himself and done the kinds of things I just mentioned. He could have gone into the valley like his nephew Lot did. He could have gone to the cities as others have done. He is purposely, consciously chosen to remain in this dependent state, which only amplifies the power of God. And the witness is that much better. And the king is acknowledging it. So in verse 23, the king says, I want you to enter into an agreement or a covenant or a peace treaty might be another way to say it. And it's concerning the land. It's particularly focused on the land and also on the king's posterity. But even then, that's really just another way to say my ability to rule and occupy this land. The king wants assurance that Abraham and his growing presence will not become a threat, not only now, but in any future generation. This is a covenant in which both Abraham and his line of descendants and Abimelech and his line of descendants are forever committed until one of the other ceases to exist. Now, you can sympathize with the king very easily when you understand his circumstances. Here's a stranger that just wandered into his land one day put his whole family at risk over this wife and a lie that he gave. And now he's grown so big and powerful, you don't know where this is headed. And so you sue for peace before the war starts. And in response, Abraham says, I agree. I have no problem with this covenant because this land is not the land of my inheritance. In other words, I can agree to you keeping this land for as long as you want it because I know the land I'm going to have in the kingdom is a land that will be given to me in a future day upon my resurrection. And therefore, you can't touch that. So what does it hurt me to have a guarantee in the meantime that we can live peacefully next to one another? It's a perfect deal for both of them. The covenant will allow Abraham to live continually and indefinitely in this land along with all his relatives. And in return, he just promises to deal fairly with Abimelech and allow Abimelech's family to live in the land in peace as well. Abimelech comes to Abraham, making it clear with his commander that you will agree with me on this treaty. I'm not in a bargaining mode. And I believe it goes all the way back to Abraham's lie. A covenant is not the kind of thing you lie over. You didn't lie about this. If you lied about a covenant, you were dead. So he was insisting on this kind of an agreement. And Abraham, for his part, sees an opportunity in this moment to secure something he wanted. Look in verse 25. But Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well of water, which the servants of Abimelech had seized. And Abimelech said, 
I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor did I hear of it until today. Abraham raised the complaint with the king concerning a well that Abraham's men had dug at some point in the past, but then Abimelech's men had come along afterward and seized the ground around the well and said, this is our well. And so Abraham sees an opportunity in this agreement to settle the score on that dispute. And a well was a big deal, a big deal in this day. Water was life in the desert. And a well was a difficult and expensive undertaking. To dig a well was a very difficult task. If Abraham had set his mind and his people's time about digging a well, it would have taken a lot of effort. It was a major thing. It was a way of saying, we plan to be here a while. Digging a well was a way of claiming rights to land. It implied ownership over the land because it was such a permanent kind of thing. You were going to be there so long if you built a well. And then to have done all of that and then to have someone else seize it, men would fight to the death over a strategic well. Cities rise up around wells. It's a life-threatening kind of situation. So if a well is dug, it has long-lasting implications. It's worth noting, though, Abraham did not try to fight over it. He never raised his arms against these men, as they seize the well, he's left it unsaid up to this point. We can take Abimelech at his word when he says, I've never heard of this. It's Abimelech's way of saying, why didn't you raise the point earlier? Now, Abraham says, I want you to deal with it. And so they enter into an agreement with both men getting what they want. Look at verse 27. Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. Then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves, Abimelech, said to Abraham, what do these seven ewe lambs mean, which you have set by, your, by themselves? He said, you shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand so that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. Therefore, he called that place Beersheba because there the two of them took an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. And Abimelech and Philcol, the commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. As we've studied in prior chapters, covenants usually involve several steps in order to cement the deal. And when covenants are presented in Scripture like they are here, the narrative usually will not give us all of the details of what was done in the cutting of the covenant. We can only assume that those steps would have been there. In this case, we only see a small piece of it. We see the payment that Abraham makes to the king in exchange for his right to sojourn in the land. It's not payment in the sense that he bought anything. It's really in recognition of the fact that the king was being gracious and letting them sojourn in the land peacefully. Abraham, for his part, is agreeing that he will not seek anything more than that, than simply the opportunity to sojourn in the land. Notice, though, that this is a covenant between equals. We have not seen this kind of covenant before. This is not a suzerainty covenant, the kind in which a, a superior king grants to a lesser subject some rights or privileges. A one-way covenant, one in which the lesser has nothing to say about it, they just receive it. That's what we've seen between God and Abraham. This is a parity covenant where two sides of equal authority are agreeing together to do something, and each has some consideration in the contract or in the covenant. It shows that Abimelech views Abraham as his equal, someone he must take seriously because of God's power and blessing. And then we have this curious addition where Abraham takes seven young female lambs, set them aside, 
And he does it in such an obvious way that Abimelech can't help but notice this is an odd little addition here. There must be some significance, some meaning. What is this all about, Abraham? And Abraham says, these seven are a sign that if you accept them as part of the agreement, if you take them from my hand, then you are agreeing that I dug this well and it is mine then to use. In effect, if Abimelech took the lambs, what he's saying is my men were wrong. And it's a face-saving way of apologizing. And Abraham has set that opportunity up so that he gets what he wants out of this agreement as well, which is not just the right to be in the land, but the right to control this one well, which will become a well that supports him and his family for many years. The effect of this moment is to establish in Beersheba a reminder of God in two ways. Where did Hagar, we are told, go to as she left with her son? Beersheba. The same place. The name is actually a play on words in Hebrew. It means seven, but the word seven alliterates to the ear exactly the same as the word for oath in Hebrew. So when you say Beersheba, it sounds like both seven and oath in Hebrew. It's in this place that there was an oath made that gave access to the land. It's also in this place that there was the final and clear separation between the two children so that forevermore the child of promise will be known as the one who stayed not the one who went to Beersheba isn't it curious that the story of the promised child's arrival is sandwiched between two accounts dealing with the man Abimelech and specifically how Abimelech came to bear on both the child and on the land Think back to God's promises to Abraham. When God made his promises to Abraham, he said that he would have a promised seed child and he would have an inheritance in the land. And in the last two chapters, Abimelech has come into the story first to threaten the seed child by virtue of taking Sarah as his wife. And God came to the rescue and preserved the seed child promise so that there'd be no doubt that it was Abraham's son and that it was Isaac who God chose. And now, in this encounter, we see God, through this covenant, ensuring Abraham a place in the land for the length of his earthly life. This is not the same as the promise that he has in the land in eternity. We understand that. But in the physical life that Abraham lived on earth, God has rescued and preserved the promise for a son and for a presence in the land. In both cases, to show that God will be there to take care of and support and confirm that promise. They are both, in a sense, down payments on the eternal promise. The seed child ultimately leads to Christ, who is the eternal fulfillment. And the land ultimately traces to the eternal destiny of Israel in the millennial kingdom, living in that same land after the resurrection. Those are the final fulfillments. But in this small way, early, God is showing his commitment to those promises. And nothing will stand in their way. Not even Abimelech. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, remembering God's faithfulness. Father, thank you that you are so faithful to your promises. We live in a world, Father, in which the word promise has largely lost its meaning. Men make promises, but do nothing of what they say. Men write contracts and break them. Men enter into covenants and we divorce ourselves from them. And yet, Father, you state the truth. And you hold it as truth. And you bind all things according to it, even yourself, such that nothing can change what you have said. 
And when we see that true in the life of a man like Abraham, how much assurance does it give us when we turn the pages to the New Testament and hear that you will never leave us nor forsake us and that none who are in your hands will perish. Promises that lead us to know, Father, that no matter what happens in this world, nothing will separate us from the love of God. That's too good a promise to keep to ourselves, Father. We ask that you would give us so many opportunities in this week and year to come, ways to share that truth, to live it out so that it would be evident in who we are, and then to speak it out, not to be afraid, but to be bold and courageous to share our faith. Let every week we spend in your word be another opportunity to train us up for that opportunity to, to, to speak and to act, to live things out, to choose blessing over sin and to be the kind of family, Father, that you will call good and faithful in the day. Let us come back next week and in the weeks to come. Bring more to join us if that's your will, Father. Let us be faithful to, to be a part of this church and let it grow. We care for its size, Father, because we care for its reach and we care for its reach because we care for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.